Welcome to Don't Look Now, the podcast with your hosts, Jenny McDonald and Will Hageman, coming to you this week as every Tuesday with our general topics of the weird, historical, random interests, <laughs> true crime, whatever the heck it may be. Um, as always, Jenny is the keeper of our topic. I've got no idea what we're about to talk about. So, uh, Jenny, yeah, throw me throw me some clues here. What are, what's our topic today? Uh, probably the greatest influence of Western culture. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm gonna go with something Greek. Not incorrect. More specific, though. More specific. A more spe- uh, the Peloponnesian War. Oh no, that's a good topic though. Um, how about it is the basis on which most sciences exist as well? Uh, the Socratic okay. method. So you're in the right realm. So we're going to talk about philosophy in general. All right, but kind of a pitch towards the Greeks because they cool. make up a lot of things. Yeah, since you know. Since it's a Greek word, you got to kind of throw your stuff toward the Greeks. Right. Right. (laughs) It's enough of a Greek thing that the word is Greek. So there we go. All right. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a Grecian word. Uh, (laughs) So ancient Greek philosophy started in the sixth century and kind of like went downhill in the dark ages. Um, It, no, sorry. It started at the end of the Dark Ages and then continued through the Hellenistic period, um, which is like the period of time where the Roman Empire was starting to kick off. Mm -hmm. So philosophy in itself deals with a lot of stuff um, and not like the same kind of way that we would look at this stuff today, which is super interesting. So it looks at astronomy, a piece epistemology, mathematics, political philosophy, ethics, metaphysics, ontology, logic, biology, rhetoric, and aesthetics. So this is the original STEM model. Yep. So all knowledge. There we go. Yeah. All knowledge. And especially like if they could be very philosophical, if they could be philosophical while talking about philosophy, that was when. (laughs) (laughs) So the safest general characterization of European philosophical tradition is that it's basically a series of footnotes to Plato. So everybody kind of built off of him. Um, There's clear unbroken lines of influence from ancient Greek to Roman philosophy, to early Islamic philosophy, to medieval scholasticism, to the European Renaissance and the age of alignment, enlightenment. Mm. Choking to death on my own spit. You got it. So, Greek philosophy is influenced by older wisdom literature and mythological cosmologies from the ancient Near East, but it's kind of uncertain how much of the impact those have on there. Um, So we can see in some of the early Greek philosophy, some of that Oriental cosmology and theology, um, it gave them a lot of ideas. But they taught themselves how to reason. So this is one of those things that it has 
if you look up um, the pet, like Pythagoras and the Pythagorean theorem, mm-hmm. his theorem actually may have been invented in multiple places at the same time. He just gets the credit because, you know, that's how we do. Yeah. So it, it's possible that a lot of people were coming to this enlightenment at the same time in different places of the world because of coming out of a dark period, because of good economic stability, things like that. So the convention of terming philosophers who were active prior to Socrates as pre-Socrates gained currency in the 1903 publication. Um, it's German called the fragment of the Vorskratir. Um, basically, it is useful because it be- it starts talking about that Athenian school. So the Socrates, Plato, Aristotle rise of new philosophy so that's an important distinction um and these pre-socratic philosophers were concerned with cosmology ontology and mathematics they were distinguished from non-philosophers because they rejected mythological explanations in favor of a reasoned discourse so they were starting to get that scientific thinking handled so Thales of Miletus is regarded by Aristotle as being the first official philosopher and held that all things arose from single material substance, water. Not because he gave cosmology, um, but because he had a naturalistic explanation of the cosmos and supported it with reason. So he was able to predict things like eclipses and taught the Egyptians how to measure the height of their pyramids. I... I just feel like, how did you build the pyramids and you don't know how to measure it? (laughs) Like, they probably knew, but I'm confused by that. Anyhow, he inspired the Malaysian school of philosophy, which was followed by Anaximander, who argued that um, substratum could not bear water or any of the classical elements, but was something unlimited. And then he began from the observation that the world seemed to consist of opposites. So things like hot and cold, night and day. Um, yet a thing can become its opposite. So like a hot thing can become a cold thing. So it can't be a true opposite. It has to be some sort of manifestation of an underlying unity that's neither that you can't see. Mm -hmm. This is that part of the philosophy where you just wonder what they were drinking. (laughs) Because that's when it's like the, the underlying unity. Got it. Um, So this underlying unity that he calls the substratum is nothing of any of the classical elements because they're too extreme. So things like water being wet, which is the opposite of dry, while fire is dry, which is the opposite of wet. Like you couldn't, you can't be these things, but you are and you aren't all at the same time. So the idea being that the initial stage is ageless and imperishable and everything returns according to the necessity of the moment. I don't know. (laughs) Whatever. So this, um, despite the varied answers that you can get, the Malaysian school was searching for a natural substance that would remain unchanged despite appearing in different forms. And this represents one of the first scientific attempts to answer the question that would lead to the development of modern atomic theory. theory. So. Stuff's got to be made of something. What? What is it? Exactly. It has to, it has to have a thing. And then you get 
Xenophanes, who was born in Ionia, where the Malaysian school was and when it was at its most powerful. And probably as a result, just being in the area, learning about the things that people are talking about, uh, picked up some of these Malaysian cosmological theories. So he argued that each of the phenomena had a natural rather than divine explanation. Um, so kind of similar to Anaximander's theories. And he also believed that there was only one God and the world as a whole. Um, and he ridiculed how Greek religion anthropomorphized things like cattle. He's mm-hmm. like, so the cattle would then claim that the gods looked like cattle and the horses like horses and things like that. Um, not a, not open-minded in any way, shape or form as far as these things are concerned. He was highly influential to subsequent schools of philosophy and probably one of the founders of the line that culminated in Pyrrhonism and maybe influenced eclectic, um, elect, no philosophy, uh, which is a precursor to Epicurean philosophy. So then comes along Pythagoras. Um, so he lives around the same time as Xenophes did. And in contrast to him, he founds a school that seeks to reconcile religious belief and reason. Uh, there's not a lot that you, you know, you can look into him about, which I found out when I tried to look up the Pythagorean theorem and Pythagoras earlier today and found shit. And that's how we ended up where we are here. <laughs> so, um, no writings of his directly survive, so it's possible that he's a mystic whose successors introduced rationalism into Pythagoreanism, um, or maybe he was actually the author of the doctrine, unknown. It said he p- might have been a disciple of Anaximander, so he might have gotten that cosmological concern of the Ionians including the idea that the cosmos is constructed of spheres, the importance of the infinite, and that the air is the arc of everything. (laughs) I would like to know how a gentleman of this comes up with one of the principles of mathematics that literally changed the world. (laughs) He has a very eclectic background. background. Yeah, there's some some interesting stuff with, yeah, if you ever... I remember looking up Pythagoras and seeing some of the things. It was like, hmm. Yeah. He's an interesting guy. He believes a lot between mathematics and the cosmics as being a sort of musical harmony. Interesting. Right. Um, And he believed that behind the appearance of things, there's a permanent principle of mathematics and that all the forms were based on transcendent transcendental mathematic relation and then he came up with the pythagorean theorem which is beloved by archaeologists everywhere (laughs) it's how you measure a unit you know whatever so then you've got a guy that comes after xenophanes and pythagoras called heraclitus and he's just like no these people are wrong um he and homer are just like we are gonna prove that all of learning you can't teach a guy to think um and then by the fifth century, he's referred in the past tense. So he probably, by the time of Parmenides, he's referred to in the past tense. So we're thinking he's like fifth century BC. So contrary to Malaysian school, which is the one stable element as this background thing that connects all the things together, mm-hmm. he's taught 
he teaches that everything flows and that the closest element to this eternal flux is fire. And all things pass in accordance to logos, which is considered the plan or the formula. He also believes that the unity of opposites um, is structured within this flux and they are in fact manifestations of good and evil itself. Alrighty then. You know, that's when you know that it's getting deep is when it starts to talk about good and evil. <laughs> it's not just hot and cold. It's good and evil. Yeah. So then comes Parmenides of Aaliyah. Um, and his philosophy is it, it is and it is not the same. All things travel in opposite directions. So maybe directly opposed to what the other guy said. Who knows? Um the doctrines of the Malaysian school suggest that the substratum could appear in different guises, implying that everything exists in a corpuscular form. Um, so he argues that the first principle of being was one indivisible, unchanged being. So there's that in eternality. Um, maybe. So this one being can't move since it would require that space both exists and doesn't exist. Um, so it's a little bit more like the singular God theory, kind of. Uh, it's kind of at odds with ordinary sensory experiences, though, where things do change and move. So it was really hard to convince some people of it. Um, but in support of Parmenides, his pupil Zeno of Elia attempts to prove the concept of motion is absurd and motion does not exist. So he attacked the subsequent de development of pluralism, arguing it's incompatible with being. And his arguments are known as the Zeno's paradoxes. There you go. So then we come along to trying to figure out what's going to happen next with subsequent philosophers. So they abandoned monism of the Malaysians. So you've got Xenophanes, Heraclitus, and Parmenides where they all have this one thing, this background unity, and they adopt pluralism. Um, so they said multiple elements were not reducible to one another and they're set in motion by love and strife or by the mind. Um, there's no coming into being or passing away, genesis or decay. Things appear to come into being and pass away because of the elements out of which they're composed as they assemble and disassemble themselves, but they're unchanged. All right. I mean, I mean, there's aspects of that that we still kind of believe. But yeah. Right. They're like Legos. Like when yeah. they're put together, they're still Legos. When they're falling apart in a different order, they're still Legos. Mm -hmm. Then um, Lekippus proposes an ontological pluralism with a cosmology based on two main elements, the vacuum and the atoms, which is quite lovely that we've used these words for so long. <laughs> right? Yeah. So this is the inherent movement, crossing of the void, creating real material bodies. Um, not super well known by the time of Plato, but they were incorporated into one of Plato's students' work. So then you get sophism, and it comes about because of nature and law. So it's kind of got an origin in the scientific process from the previous centuries, suggesting that being was radically different from what was experienced. Um, if comprehensible at all. 
but it's not necessarily comprehensible for people. Um, the world in which people live was one of law and order, but that law and order was mankind's doing. Like we created order out of chaos. At the same time, nature's pretty constant. Um, and what was law differed from one place to another and could be changed from humans. But what nature did, nature was going to do no matter what. So then the first person to call himself a sophist was Plato, or that Plato called a sophist was Protagoras, who he presented as teaching that all virtue is conventional. Uh, Protagoras claimed that a man is the measure of all things and of the things that are, that they are, and of the things that are not, they are not. This is when we get into that back and forth wishy-washy language that drives me crazy from philosophy. <laughs> I remember taking a section of this in my ethics class and I was like, what? You just said the sentence and then negated it six times in the same sentence. And I'm confused. Anyhow, uh, Plato interprets this as radical perspectivism. I do not. I refer to it as these bitches be high. Um, where some things seem to be one way for one person and another way for another person. And the conclusion being that one cannot look to nature for guidance regarding how to live your life. All right. Right. Um, subsequent sophists teach rhetoric as their primary vocation. So these dialogues explicitly teach that while nature provides no ethical guidance, the guidance that the laws provide are worthless <laughs> Or that nature favors those who act against the law. So then comes along Socrates, who is believed to have been born in Athens, Athens, not Athens, Athens, in about the fifth century. And this is really important in Greek philosophy. So at this time, Athens is the center of learning, with people traveling from across Greece to teach rhetoric, astronomy, cosmology, and geometry. I, I'm going to have to look up why geometry was so important. I can tell you I greatly hated geometry, so I've tried to block everything I ever learned about it. Well, it's definitely one of the most like physical of the mathematical disciplines. So you can go through and you can make arguments about geometric shapes and designs and trying to build things and everything else that all kind of come together. So, you know, I can see where people would get into it because it's not just kind of manipulation of numbers and things like that there's a a definite ratio of this thing to that thing and you can go through and figure out what's going on but look at you making it sound all like yeah. important and stuff yeah exactly that's where they were all obsessed with their you know golden ratios and all that kind of stuff teach me how to do my taxes later will that be great <laughs> that's what amy amy does the taxes i'll have to chase her down so while philosophy was an established pursuit prior to Socrates, Cicero credits him as the first who brought philosophy down from the heavens, placed it in cities, introduced it to families, and obligated it to examine into life morals of good and evil. If you couldn't tell, Cicero was an orator and could speak lovely things that don't <laughs> irritate the crap out of me, but still are a little too poetic for me. Anyhow. Um, by all accounts, he's considered the founder of political philosophy. Um, so the reason is this turn towards political and ethical subjects, um, which is kind of still up for debate for people. But there are a lot of conversations involving Socrates, as recounted by Plato, that end without ever reaching a firm conclusion, um, which is my least favorite method of communicating with people. <laughs> Make a damn decision. Like, 
we don't need to debate this for 7,000 hours. Just come to a conclusion and stick with it. If it doesn't work, change your mind later. Anyhow, um, it's said that Socrates pursued this probing question and answer style of examination on a lot of topics, usually attempting to arrive at a defensible, attractive definition of virtue. So the recorded conversations don't ever provide a definite answer to the question under examination. Uh, there's a lot of maxims or paradoxes for which he is known for. So he taught that no one desires what is bad. If so, anyone does something that is truly bad. It must be unwillingly or out of ignorance. Consequently, all virtue is knowledge. <laughs> he frequently remarks on his own ignorance. He claims that he doesn't know what courage is. It takes a lot of courage to tell people that you don't know that you want to be bad. So it must be out of ignorance. Therefore, it's not bad. <laughs> what do i know plato presents him as distinguishing him distinguishing himself from the commonality of mankind by the fact that they know nothing noble and good they do not they do not know that they don't know this though whereas he knows and acknowledges that he knows nothing <laughs> so so we're following a man who says he knows nothing oh any hope it feels like the weirdest humble brag. I don't really know the answer to this, but let's talk about it until you get sick of it. That sounds like a plan. <laughs> um, the statesman Pericles was associated with this new form of learning and a friend um, of Anaxagoras and his political opponents strike at him by taking advantage of a conservative reaction against philosophers. So it becomes a crime to investigate the things above the heavens or below the earth okay um and it said that anaxagoras is charged to have fled into exile when socrates was about 20 um protagoras was also forced to flee so that the athenians could burn his books socrates however is the only subject recorded as charged under this law and convicted and then sentenced to death in 399 bc um in this version, his defense speech is presented by Plato. He claims that he's the that it's the envy that he arouses on account of him being a really good philosopher that ends up convicting him. <laughs> sure. So numerous subsequent philosophical movements were inspired by Socrates or his associates. Plato cast Socrates as the main interlocutor in his dialogues, driving them from the basis of Platonism. Aristotle, in turn, criticizes and builds upon this as Plato's student into his doc doctrines, um, which he, of course, says that Socrates and Plato are the foundation of. So the Antithesenes founded the school that becomes known as cynicism and distort Socrates, or they accuse Plato of distorting Socrates' teachings. Basically, at this point, there's a little bit of infighting because then Zeno of Citrum adapts the ethics of cynicism to articulate stoicism. So, like, we've corrupted these and now we're going to create a new movement on the corrupted movement. Sounds like fun, right? <laughs> and then you get Epicurus who studies with Plato and the Pyrrhist um, before renouncing all previous philosophers. And at this point, the philosophical movements dominate intellectual life during the Roman Empire. 
you get this whole period of time where everyone is either directly or indirectly influenced by Socrates. And they are so prolific that it's absorbed by the expanding Muslim world in the 7th through the 10th centuries as they come back and forth during all periods of medieval philosophy and the Renaissance. Just blows up a little bit. So I'm not going to just run over Plato because he's important. So Plato was an Athenian. Um, he's the generation after Socrates. He had 36 dialogues and 13 letters, um, but only 24 of those are considered probably his. Although, you know, whatever intellectuals like to argue. So his dialogues feature Socrates, um, although not always is the leader, along with Xenophon. So Plato is the primary source of information about Socrates' life and beliefs. And it's not always easy to distinguish if we're talking about Socrates and Plato from these records. While he presents the dialogues often to be from Plato's mouth, um, Socrates has this reputation for irony. And he's a little cagey about his own opinions from these stories. So it's possible that when his, he's absent from a major conversation, it probably is about him, not actually about Socrates. Okay. Yeah. Anywho, um, the political doctrine that Plato is most known for is derived from Republic, the laws, and the statesmen. Um, the first of these is the suggestion that there will not be justice in cities unless they're ruled by philosopher kings. Those responsible for enforcing the laws are compelled to hold to hold their women, children, and property in common. And the individuals taught to pursue the common good through noble lies. Hmm. But of course, in the Roman, he's like, this is probably not possible. Um, because philosophers would refuse to rule the people and the people would refuse to compel them to do so. Not because all of the other things are crazy. <laughs> yeah. Philosophers are too noble for such an act. It's fine. Clearly. So the Republic is premised on a distinction between the sort of knowledge possessed by the philosopher and that possessed by the king or political person. Um, and he explores the only character of the philosopher and the statesman. On the other hand, a participant referred to as the Eliadic stranger discusses the sort of knowledge possessed by political people while Socrates listens. So lots of reading there if you're interested. He also has some metaphysical themes, um, most of which his theory forms. So it holds that non-material abstract but substantial forms and not the material world of change known to us through our physical sentence, senses possess the highest, most fundamental kind of reality. He also argues extensively for the immortality of the soul and believes in reincarnation. It's interesting to believe that some of our like religious themes go back this far. Yeah. Uh, he uses long-form analogies or allegories to explain his ideas, such as the allegory of the cave. Um, so it's the one where people are tied up in a cave who only live for the shadows on the wall. They don't really have any concept of reality. Whereas if they would turn around, they could see what was casting the shadows. And if they left the cave, they would see that, you know, light exists, which mm -hmm. represents the ultimate form of goodness. Then if they re-enter the cave, the people inside who only know about the shadows would never believe about the outside world, which 
I, th- I think it's true in reality. Like someone was held captive and they never saw the outside world. I don't think they believe the outside world existed. Do you? Yeah. I think that's a strong chance for sure. Yeah. All the made for TV movies tell me that that is the way that it works. <laughs> so then we get a student of Plato by the name of Aristotle, who's another one of those influential homeboys. Um, and he really stressed the implication that understanding relies on firsthand observation. So he leaves Daguria in 367 BC and heads to Athens to study philosophy. He enrolls in Plato's Academy. And then 20 years later, he goes to study botany and zoology and became the tutor of Alexander the Great. And then he comes back to Athens to establish his own school. Uh, 29 of his treaties have survived on various subjects, including logic, physics, optics, metaphysics, ethics, rhetoric, politics, poetry, botany, and zoology. He's often portrayed as disagreeing with Plato, uh, criticizes Plato's Republic and laws, and refers to the theory of forms as empty words and poetic metaphors. (laughs) He likes the hard sciences. He's not a big fan of all this flashy crap so he wasn't super famous during the um hellenistic period it wasn't until later that he's referred to as the master uh he's opposed the utopian style of theorizing and only relies on understood absurd observed behaviors of people in reality to form his theories um he makes a point that scarce resources ought to be responsibly responsibly allocated over poverty and death He said that the fear of goods um, exclusively supports the natural trades to keep sanitation, things like that. He's very like forward thinking of the time. Um, He not only set his mind on how to give people direction to make the right choices, but he wanted to equip them with the tools to perform this moral duty. So he attempted, um, for example, property should be in a certain sense common, but in a general world, private. When everyone has a distinct interest, people don't complain about each other. So if you have, if everybody has the same thing, no one's going to argue about it, right? And you'll make more progress because you'll be paying attention to your own stuff. So if everybody has to grow a garden, you don't care what your neighbor's doing because you also have to grow a garden. Mm-hmm. And then further, there's this pleasure in doing a kindness for friends or guests, which is only rendered when you come to a man's property. These advantages are all lost by excessive unification of state. So in other words, this is early like communism. That was the word I was coming up with. We'll leave it in that a little bit. So then after him comes cynicism. So this is the disciple of Socrates and Diogenes. And I have some really funny rabbit hole stories about Diogenes. I'm really looking forward to telling you a while. <laughs> all right. He sounds like a real freaking character. Let me tell you. So in um, cynicism, the aim was to live according to nature and against convention, which totally makes sense when you hear about Diogenes. Um, So they accused Plato of pride and conceit. Diogenes took the ideas to the limit, lived in extreme poverty, and was super (laughs) antisocial. Super antisocial. So yeah. Diogenes gives away his fortune and lives on the streets of Athens and is weird and great. <laughs> and then you get the Syrianax who come from Cyrene. Uh, they're pupils of Socrates. 
their headness. They held that pleasure was the supreme good in life, especially physical pleasure. So the more intense, more desirable, that is better than mental pleasures. And pleasure is only good in life. Pain is the only evil. So Socrates, of course, says that virtue is the only human good, but also had a limited role. Um, This allowed pleasure to be secondary goal. But they were like, no, we like that rule. Let's let's (laughs) kick that up a notch. All the pleasure. And then comes along the Megarian school from the fourth century. It's founded by Euclides, 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 Euclidean formula guy. Euclid? Euclid. That guy. So yeah, um, they're pupils of Socrates and they recognize a single good, which has apparently combined with the Eleatic doctrine of unity. They work on logic models, logical conditions, propositional logic, that kind of stuff. Super cool. Anywho. <laughs> so then comes the Pyrrhonists. Pyrrhonisms. Heroes. The Pharaohs. Pharaoh of Elias is a Democritian philosopher who went to India with Alexander the Great. Um, there he's influenced by Buddha. And the three marks of existence. So when he comes back to Greece, he starts a new school of philosophy and teaches that it is one's opinions about the non-evident matters that prevent one from obtaining eudaimonia. Um, and he places the attainment of ataria, which is a state of equanimity, as the way to achieve this. Don't know what any of these words mean. Just assume that I do. <laughs> I don't either. So we're good. Yeah. Uh, basically, they dispute that dogmatists, which include all of the rival philosophies, have found truth regarding non-evident matters. Uh, non-evident matters make for arguments found against and thus suspending belief. And then, you know, they're just, they suspend their belief until they reach the attainment of a taxera. Anyhow. Alrighty. That one's a weird one for me. Sorry. (laughs) Move on to Epicurus. Um, He studied this, accepted the theory of atomism with improvements made in response to criticisms from Aristotle. So he believed in the pursuit of pleasure with the avoidance of pain. Um, So it's not simple hedonism. He He says, we don't mean the pleasures of the prodigal or sensuality. We mean just absence of pain in the body and the trouble of the mind. Epicureanism sounds fantastic. I agree. Let's not have pain. That's simple enough. Then you start to get to the near the declines, right? So you get um, Stoicism, which is founded by Zeno of Sidim. And these like start to move real quickly, little teeny tiny movements at this point. So he took up the cynic ideals of continence and self-mastery, but applied the concept of apathia or indifference to personal circumstances rather than social norms and switched flame of flouting of this for the latter for resolute fulfillment of social duties. Um, it also involves some physics and logics, but their metaphysics were based in materialism structured by logic or reason. Uh, logical contributions still feature in contemporary propositional calculus. But overall, the ethics were based on pursuing happiness. I think it's really interesting that these philosophers thought they were pursuing happiness while they were doing math. Those are diametrically opposed (laughs) and should really be considered elsewhere. Then you pop over to some skepticism around 
266 BC, the new head of the Platonic Academy adopted skepticism as a core tenet of Platonism, um, making Platonism almost the exact same as Pyrrhonism. It's really hard to distinguish them at this point. So you get this skeptical period of ancient Platonism, um, and this changes the academy to what's called now the New Academy. Um, there's also a subdivision of a middle academy because, you know, academics can't have nice things, so we can't have a clean line. Um, but the academic skeptics don't doubt the existence of truth. They doubted that humans had the capacity for obtaining it. Okay. They based this on Plato's Phaedo, section 64 through 67, where they discuss how knowledge is not accessible to mere mortals, just <laughs> philosophers. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. That's kind of where that one lands. And then you move down to the middle Platonism. So at the end of the skeptical period with the academy, Platonic schools entered the middle Platonism, which absorbs ideas from Stoic schools and combine it with the new Platonism. Um, so here they argue that the mind exists before matter and that the universe has a singular cause, which then must which has a singular cause, which must therefore be a singular mind. So it essentially becomes a religion and has this huge impact on Christian theology. And then the Middle Ages hit because, <laughs> of course, they do. And the Greeks are pretty much forgotten because Europeans don't read anymore because it's the Middle Ages. It's cold. It's dark. You got the migration period. Um, but the Byzantine Empire does preserve a lot of the Greek ideals. And then you've got the Islamic philosophers who are also reinterpreting the work um, by gathering the Greek manuscripts and hiring translators. And then during the High Middle Ages, Greek philosophy re-enters the world, but it's translated from Arabic into Latin. And the original Greek is now in the Byzantine Empire, so they can't get a hold of those. Nice. So then you get a lot of these Arabic commentaries that have a really big influence on medieval philosophers. So there you go. Then we go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Here's where the story gets fun. As promised, Diogenes is a mess. So I have a couple little fun Diogenes stories. Diogenes once delivered Plato a plucked chicken and told him it was a man. See, Plato had argued that man was nothing but a feathered biped. So Diogenes was like, I'll tell him what an assumption that is. So he found a live chicken, plucked it, showed up, and handed it to Plato. And Plato then amended that the definition of man had to include that you had broad flat nails not short pecky ones yeah. <laughs> it's the only difference the only difference between a chicken and a man diogenes remember he lived on the street and was weird so he liked to offend people as much as possible so one of the things that he did was pleasure himself while inside of a barrel in public <laughs> And he defended this behavior by telling people it's as easy to relieve hunger by rubbing an empty stomach. <laughs> he's a he's an interesting guy. Um, my final Diogenes story is that, and this there's probably a bajillion of these out here. I probably could just do a whole episode on what a hot mess Diogenes was. 
he was known for pooping in the public theaters and urinating on people that annoyed him. Wonderful. The theaters were outside. Yeah. In the middle of the theater. Why not? Probably in his barrel. Yeah. Probably. Probably. So there was a philosopher called Demonax, who's a Greek philosopher who was so chill. He gets this reputation for being an expert peacemaker for politicians, brothers, for couples. And like this reputation goes to the point where like he's so relaxed and laid back about things that eventually he stops eating and starves to death. But here's the thing. He's a hundred years old. He's just, just like, <laughs> I mean, if I eat, I eat, it's no big deal. You know, yeah. like, you, you know, it's cool guys. It's cool. Nice. Right. And then finally, Cyrus, no, Kyrisippus died after a donkey ate his figs. This causes the philosopher to laugh so hard at his own joke, where he basically says, give the ass a drink of pure wine so he can wash down the figs, that he dies. <laughs> he died laughing at a donkey. That is an interesting sense of humor. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Anywho, this is the story of the philosophers so that I can actually find the math to talk about at some point. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, yeah. So many different Greek names and different philosophies. And yes, you know, I need, I've run into part of it just when I took, you know, Greek history class forever ago. So the main, you know, the main Socrates, Plato, Aristotle thing, I think has been hit enough that I like got an idea of what they're thinking but enough of it is it's a lot to dissect there but i think the thing that's really important that we learn is that everything is built basically off of those same one ideal that just is like do we argue against it or for it at one mm -hmm. point that's where the split really seems to be yeah otherwise mm -hmm. all of it's just based off of the original philosophy my yeah. next big takeaway is that these people had way too much fucking time on their hands yeah, I was to say this is this is where you can see the division of labor and you know right <laughs> the quote unquote middle class showing up. They got you got you yeah, have enough food and things around for people to sit around and think about stuff and forget to eat. So, you know. Right. Well, I mean, it's clear from the fact that like it started at the end of the Greek Dark Ages is when the Age of Enlightenment of philosophy started. So like mm -hmm. makes sense. They had time, they had money. Yep. And then as soon as, you know, we hit another dark age, suddenly, what do they not have? Philosophers. Yep. Yeah. It's wild. And you just got people with big clubs running around. Smacking That's right. That's <laughs> <laughs> your philosophy right here. But yeah. No, oh, it's cool. So, yeah, no, thanks for the, the, re, <laughs> the rehash of Greek philosophers. I have forgotten the vast majority of those people. So... It's cool. But yeah, that's just always fascinating that, you know, it's that long ago that you have people that whose literal life was spent just thinking through things. Yeah. And it was actually supported by the society they were in, which is, you know, kind of shocking. So Yeah. The fact that they thought this was such a needed service that yeah. it's wild. Yep. Yep. No, the Greeks are pretty fascinating i always always 
for some reason, this in my mind is linked to the fact that I still remember seeing the first vending machine, which was an ancient Greek thing from around the same time where, you know, <laughs> it's like people had made a contraption so you could put your coin in the thing and it would, you know, vend water to you and stuff. And you're like, yeah, it's like people were, were really moving along pretty quickly back then. So, you know, I would love to go to Greece just because it's such a wonderful snapshot in places, obviously. Yeah. Of what actually was happening in Greece at the time. Yeah. And there is so much recorded history during this period of time, whereas that's not the same story everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Nika got to go, you know, the summer after high school. That's right. I forgot that. I'm generally jealous, but they're making the point of like, yeah, you know, and there the ancient Greek writing is still there and it's like, it's still intelligible to the people living nearby it's like yeah it's you got your your stuff from you know 500 bc and it's still still generally readable by everybody it's like yeah okay we get the gist of it still yeah Yeah, you know yeah that's pretty cool so pretty cool but yeah no thanks and uh, thank you everybody for checking in this week you know as always rate subscribe review Check out our podcast and tell your friends about us, and uh, we will see you all in a week. Bye, Bye folks.